One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of the Queens of England podcast is sponsored by Audible, the home of over 180,000 audiobooks and other spoken word products. You can get a free audiobook today, or indeed any other day, by signing up at audibletrial.com forward slash queens for a free 30-day trial. If you don't like it, you can cancel it at any time and even keep the free book. Better yet, by signing up at audibletrial.com forward slash queens, you'll be showing your support for the Queens of England podcast. I'd also like to remind you all about the best ways to keep in touch with the show. There's my website, queensofenglandpodcast.com, and the Facebook page, Queens of England Podcast, and the Twitter, Queens Podcast. And don't forget also to leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to grow this community and get new listeners to join us for every episode. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 24, Joanna of Navarre, the Witch Queen. I would like to preface this episode by saying that I am not an expert on medieval magic and witchcraft. I mean, I'm not an expert on anything really, but I at least have an academic background in the study of queenship. I don't on medieval magic. Everything that I'm going to be talking about with you today is from things that I have learned over the last month or so while researching the story of Joanna of Navarre. I was initially going to be dealing with her story in one go, one episode that would have been pretty long but self-contained, But while I was writing the last show, though, two things became clear. First, this episode writing sure is getting super long, and second, I really need to study more about witchcraft. Joanna is the first of our queens to be explicitly accused of being a witch. She would not be the last, and so it's worth studying this in a little more depth. Therefore, this episode will serve as a necessarily concise introduction into medieval sorcery and how it relates to the final years of Joanna of Navarre. If you're an expert on this sort of thing, then I apologise for the lack of depth, but I'm learning about it at the same pace as the rest of you. That disclaimer over, I hope you enjoy the show. There have been two kinds of queens who have survived their husbands so far in this story. Those who go on to have very active political lives, such as Eleanor of Aquitaine or Isabella of France, and those who sort of fade into obscurity like Berengaria of Navarre or Adeliza of Louvain. Joanna is about to play a kind of middle course here, though of course her later life does have its own distinct flavour. Ascending to the throne, of course, was her stepson, Henry V, and no, she doesn't turn up in his Shakespeare play either. 
Henry was not yet married, and so Joanna maintained her position of senior lady at court, and still played a prominent role on the ceremonial parts of being queen. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail about Henry's reign, as we'll cover it in more detail next time, but to very quickly summarise, he restarted the Hundred Years' War and gave the French a damn good thrashing at Agincourt. This was a very bittersweet moment for Joanna, as it saw the triumph of her adopted country, but the battle also saw the deaths of her former brother-in-law, the Duke of Alençon, and her brother, Charles of Navarre, who were both fighting for the French. And her son Arthur was wounded and captured, but that did mean that he had come to England and reside with her. There are some very floral accounts of their reunion that sadly we don't have time to get into, especially as they are all wildly untrue. But it is fair to say that relations between the Dowager Queen and her stepson the King were as good as they had ever been in this period, and her popularity was steady throughout as well. She was not wildly popular given her Bretonness and the controversy over the size of her dowry, but she wasn't much disliked. So why was she accused of witchcraft and thrown into jail in 1419? There are two things going on here, and I'm going to deal with them separately. The first is the whole notion of witchcraft in the Middle Ages and how it relates to gender, and the other, which is the specifics of why Joanna of Navarre was accused of it, as they are two quite different things despite being highly linked. So, let's start off by asking a simple question. What do you think of when you think of the word witch? It's a word that conjures up different things for different people, especially thanks to the variety of TV and film fantasy series produced in the last few years. Do you think of, for example, Hermione Granger from the Harry Potter series, a highly literate, highly intelligent woman who achieved her status as a powerful wielder of magic through hard work and determination, living in a world where magical talent is natural, accepted and celebrated? If so, I want you to cast that from your mind. Cast it right away because it is precisely the wrong image. Maybe, if you grew up in the 90s, you're thinking of Willow Rosenberg from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Also highly literate and intelligent, but one whose powers seem to emanate from a more otherworldly force called the Seed of Power. Something that can be corrupted. Something that can affect your very soul and turn you into an instrument of evil. Something demonic. But not necessarily if you control it. There are good witches and bad witches in the Buffyverse, and Willow falls on both sides of the line as the storyline progresses over seven seasons. But also, someone who looks like you or me. Well, probably better looking than you or me, because it's show business. That is a lot closer to what the medieval conception of the witch is, but not quite, in part at least because you're supposed to like Willow. Then there is the classic idea of a witch, I think best exemplified by the Wicked Witch of the West in her incarnation in the 1939 film The Wizard of Oz. She is pure evil, pure grade, pure ugly, nothing really to sympathise with. When she dies at the end, there are no tears, only cheers. Similar to this, but closer in the time period, are the witches in Shakespeare's Macbeth. Now this play, of course, was written in the 17th century and owes much more to the early modern conception and fears of witchcraft than it does about early medieval Scotland, or indeed 15th century England, but it's worth examining nonetheless. Shakespeare describes these witches first in Act 1, Scene 3, through the words of Banquo and Macbeth himself. As a change of pace, I've actually taken a clip this time from Roman Polanski's adaptation of the play that was released as a film in 1971. What are these? So withered and so wild in their attire that look not like the inhabitants of the earth, and yet are on it. Speak if you can. What are you? All hail, Macbeth. Hail to thee, Thane of Glam. 
All hail, Macbeth. Hail to the fane of Cordor. All hail, Macbeth. That shall be king hereafter. In the name of truth, are you fantastical, or that indeed which outwardly you show? Now, there are a few ways of reading The Witches and Macbeth, but there is no doubt that when Shakespeare wrote this description, he knew what his audience were expecting to see when they thought of a witch. They are either worldly, but also of this earth, male and female, human and inhuman. Throughout the play, the witches are mainly used as fates, goading Macbeth into murder by foretelling his future. Yet you're encouraged to question whether they are true fates toying with the eponymous king, or whether they are frauds and merely goading him into evil deeds. As they themselves say in the first scene of the play, fair is foul and foul is fair. Nothing is certain with them. They are mysterious beings, certainly, but what they actually are is shrouded in mystery. They're fairly passive in the story, in the sense that they don't really do anything except be creepy and appear to tell people's futures. But if you believe that they don't actually have any magical powers, that there is no such thing as fate, then they essentially cause all of the awful things that happen to Macbeth through making him believe that they did have powers. What awful things? Well, you know, in short, everyone dies. Moreover, everyone dies because of something that Macbeth did, and everything that Macbeth does is foretold by these witches. Did they make him do it by suggesting that it was his fate? In the minds of people at the time, this is what people thought of as the behaviour of witches, using their magic and slippery tongues to cause death and destruction. Finally, and going back even further, there is the character of Circe from the Odyssey, which many of Shakespeare's more educated audience would have been familiar with. Circe is someone that Odysseus encounters early in his ten-year-long journey back to Ithaca from Troy, and lives on an island alone in her big house surrounded by lots of pets that turn out to be men that she turned into various animals, depending on how she felt about them at the time. Like so many women in Greek myth, she uses her good looks and charm to seduce and entrance men into following her before turning on them and using her magic against them. This is what she does to Odysseus's men, but of course our hero, thanks to some help from his brave friend, outwits the fiendish witch and even manages to bed her and turn her to his will using his manliness because the Odyssey is the feminist's worst nightmare. The reason why I bring this up is because that has this notion of the beautiful temptress, luring unsuspecting weak men to their doom. They use their devilish, womanly wiles to do this, and so the only way to combat it is with godly manliness, strength, force of will, and of course sexual domination. What am I getting at here? Well, essentially what I'm trying to say is that witchcraft for people in the later Middle Ages was universally considered malevolent, satanic, and dangerous to everyone's way of life. In this period, it was not entirely gendered, as around 15% of those accused of witchcraft in Europe between 1300 and 1650 were men, but an accusation of witchcraft was definitely a weapon predominantly aimed at women, especially those who were disliked. Their magical powers were very ill-defined, which of course meant that they could be accused of almost any crime, or indeed future crime, as of course magic leaves no evidence to convict. Now in this period, witchcraft wasn't so much associated with magic in the way we think of it today. To get into a little bit of history, this conception of witchcraft emerged in the early 14th century, and so by the time we get to Joanna of Navarre, it had been around for about a hundred years. In 1326, Pope John XXII issued a proclamation against sorcerers that stated, quote, Some people, Christian in name only, have forsaken the first light of truth to ally themselves with death and traffic with hell. 
They sacrifice to and adore devils. They make or obtain figurines, rings, vials, mirrors, by which they command demons, asking their aid and giving themselves to the most shameful subjection for the most shameful of ends. Who is being targeted? Well, in the early days of the witch craze, i.e. the early 14th century, they were hunting after Wicked Witch of the West types, old single women. But in this period, things were beginning to shift towards younger married women, exactly the kind of women that rich older men now had as wives. Now, of course, by now, Joanna of Navarre was in her middle age, but she had been twice married and was exactly the sort of target that witch hunters would have been looking for because of her money and independence from male domination. Now, I'm going to end it here for my discussion of the background of witchcraft in medieval Europe, but I really have only scratched the surface here. It's a fascinating area of study, and there was a lot to uncover in my research, and I hope that I've done it justice. So, to the specifics of the case of Joanna of Navarre. When Henry V left for France, he knew that he could have been going to his death, so he left Joanna in charge of a number of his key castles, showing the trust that he had for his stepmother. She took part in the victory parades and celebrations when Henry came home, and played a big role in arranging yet another Anglo-Breton truce. But in 1419, everything changed. The following is from the Parliament Rolls, and if you're a lover of legalese and lists, then you're in for a treat. Quote, Be it remembered that, following information delivered to the King, our Sovereign Lord, both through the account and confession of one brother Randolph of the Order of Friars Minor, and through other credible evidence, that Joan, Queen of England, had plotted and schemed for the death and destruction of our said Lord the King in the most evil and terrible manner imaginable, which plot, conspiracy, and destruction have been publicly made known throughout the whole realm of England. It is therefore advised, agreed, and ordained by the counsel of our Lord the King that, among other things, all the goods and chattels of the said Queen, and also all the goods and chattels of Roger Collis of Shrewsbury and of Perronel Brocar, formerly in the service of the said Queen, who are notoriously suspected of the aforesaid treason, in whoever's hands they are, which the said Queen had, or the said other persons named above had, on the 27th of September last and afterwards, and also all the issues, rents, farms, arrears of farms, customs, revenues, profits, and proceeds issuing and arising from all the castles, manors, lordships, honours, lands, tenements, rents, services, fees, advowsons, hundreds, franchises, liberties, and other possessions of any kind which the same queen had and held in dower. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Or otherwise, all the said other persons had on the aforesaid 27th of September should be received and kept by the Treasurer of England or his deputy at the time, who will have the custody of the aforesaid goods and chattels, and also of all the issues, rents, farms, arrears of farms, customs, revenues, profits, and proceeds arising and issuing from all the castles, manors, lordships, honours, lands, tenements, rents, services, fees, advowsons, hundreds, franchises, liberties, and other possessions belonging to both the Queen and to the aforesaid other persons. And then it goes on like that for a very long time, listing every possible avenue of revenue that the Queen might have and seizing it. The Chronicles of the time certainly brought into the story, with the London Chronicle saying rather sensationally that she sought, quote, by sorcery and necromancy to have destroyed the King. Now the sources are very vague on the details here, on what precisely Joanna is supposed to have done that made her so witchy, but they all agree that it was part of some evil plot to kill Henry V. She was not aided by the memory of her father, who was also accused of sorcery later in life, and the fact remained that she was a foreigner and a Breton at that, the scourge of English merchant shipping. And don't forget that she had family fighting on the side of France too, and no one in England had a good thing to say about the French. This was a time when accusations of witchcraft were taken very seriously, and there were great fears amongst the English that their great and noble king, the greatest soldier England had produced since Richard the Lionheart, was in danger of being killed by the devil's agents. Fear of sorcery was sweeping the kingdom, and many people genuinely would have believed that Joanna was a witch. It's just that none of the people at the centre of the scandal thought any such thing. How do we know this? Well, we can tell from the records of her captivity. The man that formally accused her of witchcraft, her former confessor John Randolph, was in prison in the tower as he had only made the accusation to distract from his other crimes. He was left to rot, eventually dying in 1429 as a result apparently of a brawl with a drunk priest. Joanna's life behind bars was quite different. All told, she was held captive for three years. In that time, she lost all her servants and property, though she would be provided with new and different servants as she was a queen after all. In the first few months of her imprisonment, she was moved from residence to residence across the country in the custody of various gentlemen, and it seems kept in a state of relative comfort, before spending almost all of the rest of the time as a prisoner in the confusingly named Leeds Castle in Kent. The records of her captivity are a fascinating insight into the life of a high-born noble prisoner in this period, and though I've used the words bars, captive, and prisoner, any notions of a prison that you might have in your mind I would like you to banish right away. This is more like an officer's parole than doing time in Shawshank. The accounts that we have cover the first half of her captivity, and show a woman living in great comfort, even for someone as accustomed to luxury as Joanna. She was allowed no fewer than 19 grooms and 7 pages to wait on her, was allotted a very generous clothes budget, which we know from various orders for silks, lace, furs, and fancy linen. They also know invoices for gold chains, rosaries and girdles, and silver cutlery, pendants, and candlesticks. She had an expensive heart prepared, bought two very expensive books, and even bought a birdcage for her jay. This was all in the first three months, and it seems that a certain degree of austerity was placed upon her after that. 
Her allowance was cut from £37.16 per week to £11.17 per week, which is a substantial reduction, but still a very generous allowance. It is also suggested that part of the reduction is recognition that she didn't need to pay for everything that was provided for her. For example, there are no more expenses for stables in the following year, but that is more likely because she was using the horses of her governor and didn't need her own. She also compensated for this by buying a great quantity of wine, which, given the turn her life had taken, I would have done the same. She was also very far from being isolated. All this expensive wine had to be drunk by some fancy guests, and we have records of the following visitors. The Archbishop of Canterbury, the Duke of Gloucester, twice, the hugely powerful and rich Bishop of Winchester, who stayed for a whole weekend, and one lord who enjoyed her hospitality so much he stayed for eight months. Let's remember that this woman is accused of treason via witchcraft. You don't get a much more serious accusation than that. And yet the two most powerful churchmen in England, men who are supposed to view witches as the spawn of Satan, were dining with her. Not long after this, Joan of Arc would be accused of something similar and get burned at the stake. Countless other women in this period would suffer the same fate. Now, of course, Joanna was of a far higher status than Joan and had the advantage of not kicking the English army all around Western France for a few years, but the point stands that Joanna was not being treated like a witch despite being accused of being one. Another, perhaps more pertinent comparison, is Eleanor, Duchess of Gloucester, who was accused of witchcraft 20 years later in 1441. This is a set-piece scene in Shakespeare's Henry VI, and is also a highly political character assassination, but there does appear to have been evidence in her case of her attempting to deal in sorcery, and this is evident in the different path that their cases took. Eleanor was brought speedily to trial, imprisoned for life, and kept in a tiny fraction of what Joanna was. By comparison, Joanna was not even ever taken to trial. That's right, the leading men of the kingdom from the king down had accused the Dowager Queen of treasonous witchcraft, and they didn't even go to the bother of a show trial. So why was she accused in the first place if they didn't intend to prosecute her? Well, the Battle of Agincourt was a massive defeat for France, but the war was ruinously expensive for Henry. Then, in 1419, another massive expense was incurred because in that year, England and their Burgundian allies forced Charles VI to agree to marry off his daughter Catherine to the English king Henry V, and that their children would inherit both the crowns of England and France. Again, we'll go into much more detail next time, but the key thing here is the dowry for Catherine, which was, well, a lot. It was at this point that Henry's eyes began to look most enviously upon Joanna's rich dower, which his father had given her, and was seen as bleeding the country dry. For Henry, everything was about glory, everything was about securing that French crown. There was nothing that he would not do to get it, even throwing his stepmother under the proverbial bus. Like I said last time, Joanna's dowry was costing the English treasury a fortune. It is estimated at this point that the English royal revenues amounted to around £56,000 a year. Joanna's dowry payments took 10000 a year from that revenue. Now, of course, an easy resort was just to let the diary run into arrears, which it did on numerous occasions, but even so, it was an incredible drain, costing many thousands a year. In captivity, Joanna may have led, still, a life of relative luxury, but she only cost around £700 a year, a huge saving, especially when the dowry of her successor as Queen, Catherine of France, cost around £6,500 a year. So it seems to me that this accusation of witchcraft against Joanna was almost purely a matter of expedience, as it was handled entirely unlike any other accusation of witchcraft made in this period. If the matter had gone to trial, it would have been a humiliating experience for Joanna, 
and would have resulted at best in enormous shame and worst in death. Henry III spared his stepmother that, though of course it had been him that had placed her in that position in the first place. The reason why they threw witchcraft at her as their accusation is basically because it was convenient. You didn't need evidence, you just needed to be believed, and the hero king of Agincourt was always going to be believed of the Breton gold digger of a dowager queen. Henry needed the money to finish off France and secure the French crown and his French bride. Henry was not squeamish about going after his enemies, indeed he was more than usually zealous for his age when it came to using the death penalty, but for Joanna there was no need to go to the problem of a trial. His aim was to get her money, and get her money is what he did. It seems though that while he acted with extreme ruthlessness here, he did regret his decision, and in the final weeks of his life before his untimely death, he not only freed his stepmother, but also restored her lands and dowry, which must have sent the bean counters of the exchequer into hysterics. The lurid accusations made against her were dropped, and she was permitted to live out her life in wealthy obscurity. Before her incarceration, she had played the ceremonial duties of queen for her stepson, as at that point he was unmarried. Now, though, those duties were instead carried out by Henry V's widow, Catherine, and so there really was little for her to do at court, and it seems that she was perfectly content to retire. She went first to Langley Palace in Hertfordshire, but in 1431 she was forced to leave after it was destroyed in a fire, and so thereafter she moved to Havering Manor in Essex. Just because she was no longer involved in great affairs of state, it did not mean that she had retired from her business ventures, and indeed it seems that she spent her remaining years essentially as a property magnate, much like her predecessor as Queen Eleanor of Castile had done. She didn't remarry for a second time, probably because she had no need to. She had plenty of children, she was financially secure, and had no desire to have some dude taking all that money and telling her what to do. She had had a very busy and eventful life, and now it was time for her to live out her twilight years in peace. On the 10th of June, 1437, Joanna died at Havering Manor. We have no information describing what arrangements were made for the movement of her body from Havering to Canterbury, or even what she died of, but it was to Canterbury that she was taken, where she was buried next to her husband, Henry IV, lying side by side even to this day. So, what can we make of Joanna? Historians seem to fall into two basic camps. They either basically ignore her as an irrelevance, or they cast her as a victim. But I hope in this two-part series I have shown that she was far more than just that. She had a full and eventful life before she came to England. Remember her rat bastard of her father? How he nearly got her and her brothers killed by being a right pain in the butt to the French who held them as hostage? She escaped that drama by getting married to an ageing Breton duke, who was desperate to have children so that he could pass off his title securely, and she gave him plenty of children. She then governed the duchy with distinction while her son grew up once her husband died, not becoming tempted to do an Isabella and cling on to power that was not rightfully hers before it was pried away from her cold, dead hands. Her second marriage to Henry only makes sense it was to at least an extent for love. Both of them had been married previously and had the children that were dynastically necessary. Her dowry was an unnecessary burden on the country, and it would have been better for everyone if it had been lower, not least for Joanna herself in later years, but you can hardly blame her for securing a good deal for herself. She was a fairly quiet queen, but a successful one for that. I suspect that she was far more active than the source record suggests, but sadly we can only go on what we have. She was a frequent intercessor and a useful way for England to keep Brittany at peace. Those who cast her as the victim do so because of the accusation of witchcraft, which has been the focus of this episode, but it is clear that Joanna was no victim. She was accused out of expedience, but rose above it, and by all accounts had a whale of a time. 
using the fact that her stepson had no intention of actually trying her to court powerful men in the kingdom and make sure that he felt as bad as possible about her plight. She used what limited power she had to great effect and secured her freedom. Finally, I think it's worth saying something about the difference between young and older queens. I've continually compared Joanna to Eleanor of Castile, especially when it comes to their business acumen, and I think that a lot of it comes down to their ages when they came to the throne. So far, the typical queenly lifetime goes like this. Married around 12 to 14, spend the next 10 to 15 years giving birth, and then start to develop some political power. If you were still around in your 30s and 40s, then you could start playing the wise elder stateswoman and become a guide for your husband, children, and even grandchildren. Now, of course, a lot of our queens never made it that far, but Eleanor and Joanna, of course, skipped all these first steps before they even became queen. They had their children way before and became queens in their early 30s. This meant they had the time to do their own thing and the experience to know when and where to exert influence, not to mention who are the best people to have as allies and officials. They were both active partners in the reigns of their husbands, who, despite their reputations for being hard military men, doted on their wives. They were not passive ornaments or quarrelling opponents for them, and both deserve far more attention than they are currently given. Next time, we look at Henry V's prize from the field of Agincourt, Catherine of France, also known as Catherine of Valois. She is known for many things, but perhaps most importantly for the history of England, she was the mother of the Tudor dynasty. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.